Good morning and happy Sabbath. Um, today our scripture reading is Leviticus 25, 18 through 21, and verses 35 through 38. That's Leviticus 25, 18 through 21, and 35 through 38. Wherefore ye shall do my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land in safety. And the land shall yield her fruit, and ye shall eat your fill, and dwell therein in safety. And if ye shall say, What shall we eat in the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow, nor gather our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth fruit for three years. And if thy brother be waxen poor, and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no usury of him, nor increase, but fear thy God. That thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him the money upon usury, now, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. I am the Lord thy God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Thank you, Kendra. And uh, now we'll give the rest of the time to Pastor. Sorry about the mix-up on the screen. That was my fault, just so you know. <laughs> they, they were making an attempt to change the translation because you can do that live right now, um, and they could just click a button, and it turns to King James Version. So I texted DJ and told him to do that, and, and, and then I, I got it messed up. So my bad. <laughs> he already chastised me. <laughs> oh, Happy Sabbath. This is a, a good week that we're approaching. Thanksgiving week is, is uh, happy times for a lot of people. It's, it's not always happy times. Sometimes getting family together can be volatile. I understand that. Um, or sometimes family isn't around and uh, for various reasons. And it can be sad and lonely times too. So I want to recognize that. But, but it is generally a, a season of gratitude and thanksgiving and joy and, and, and family. And, and it's appropriate that we kind of talk about uh, that, that subject, that context, um, as we meet together the Sabbath before Thanksgiving. So I'd like to pray with you, and then we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 25, which might not be a natural place that you'd think of turning to on the Sabbath before Thanksgiving, but hopefully at the end, you'll recognize the connection. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for your watch care over us, that you are providing for us and taking care of us, and this season is a season of Thanksgiving, and so we want to recognize how much you've done for us. Uh, but Lord, that, that message, I think can sometimes be a surface message, and our hearts aren't really fully grasping how much you take care of us. And I pray that that would sink deep and that we would begin to trust you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, the, the author F. Scott Fitzgerald, the guy who wrote The Great Gatsby, he said this, the rich get richer and the poor get children. I think most of us would say that children are the greatest wealth, right? But, but it's probably true, this statement, the rich get richer. It seems like it's true in our society today. Um, according to Wikipedia, the net worth of U.S. households and, non, uh, and nonprofit organizations together combined about almost $95 trillion in the first quarter of 2017. And at that time, it was a record. Today, it's even greater. I don't know what the statistics are for net worth of all the people in the United States and nonprofits, but it's, it's a lot of money. And uh, if you were to take um, all of that and divide it equally um, among the 124 million or so households in the United States, guess how, many, how much money you'd have in your household? Is that $760,000? Who would like a $760,000 um, net worth? That'd be nice. I'd like that. Uh, but, but actually, the bottom 50% of uh, the households in the United States have a total net worth of $11,000. That's a huge difference in income gap. You can see the, the slide on the screen. 
If you're looking at the far left side, that's uh, 71% of the people in the world own 3% of the wealth. 0.7% of the people in the world own 45% of the wealth. That's a huge difference in wealth distribution. It seems like F. Scott Fitzgerald was pretty accurate when he said that the rich keep getting richer. And these numbers only tend to increase. The difference tends to grow. Right now, the difference between a, uh, the, the middle-income American and the top 10% of earners in America is 1,000%. The difference between that top 10% and the top 1%, the median of the top 10% and the top 1%, it's another 1,000%. The gap is huge. Inequality, well, I, I should say there's also a, a gender gap in the United States. Ladies are earning somewhere in the range of 20% less in the same jobs that men are working in. And inequality is something that it kind of irks society. There's a lot of people that talk about inequality, and I think it's something that Christians should be concerned with too. And, and when I think of it, I'm not thinking about inequality where, you know, the guy is diligent, he's prioritizing um, being a, a good worker and, and uh, earning money and things like that, uh, versus the guy who's just um, prioritizing his social and entertainment life. That's not the inequality that I'm talking about. We're talking about intergenerational inequality, stuff that where if you pass down a quality education and, and options for employment and, and uh, good choices to your kids... And, and hopefully some generational wealth that you can give them as well, then they're going to be wealthier than you were, and their kids will be wealthier than they are because you're passing down those, that, that upward mobility potential. Uh, but the opposite is also true. If you pass down poor education opportunities and poor employment opportunities, then your children will probably stagnate or even decline in their wealth mobility. And that's just a reality, and it's one that's most starkly seen in the United States between white and black Americans. And if you, if you study at all this idea of inequality, you'll find that, that black Americans tend to have less potential for growth than white Americans. And that's the case um, in, in every economic status of black Americans. Their ease of passing on their wealth is much less than with white Americans. Inequality is a big deal. And this, this idea of inequality, I think God has something to say about it. And it's not that God wants to distribute wealth among everybody equally. He never intended that. He didn't intend for everybody to have the same experience or the same opportunities. That, that wasn't his plan. But he does say, and in, in, in fact, just to support that idea, Isaiah 65, 21 he says that in heaven, we, we will each build houses and live in them, and we will plant vineyards, and we will eat the fruit of them. We're not just going to be laborers. We're going to be owners, and we're going we're to enjoy the fruit of our labor. That, that's God's intention, that, that we can enjoy the work that we did. But the world, it gets it wrong in what we might call unregulated free, capital, free market capitalism. They, they don't quite get it right because there's, there's uh, fewer and fewer opportunities for the poor to get wealthy and more and more opportunities for the wealthy to get wealthier in, in free markets, unregulated capitalism. But God, he gets it right. He has a system, a plan for handling this. And unfortunately, he gave the plan to the Israelites and they really flubbed it up. So we don't get to experience it. Sorry, I'm not going to tell you how to have um, in equality, biblical equality, that's not going to work in our society today because you kind of have to have the entire civic government involved or it's just not going to work out. But I think we can learn from the principles of what God shared with the Israelites and how he wanted their economy to work. And some of those principles are really important for you and me today, especially as we think about this season of gratitude and thanksgiving. So let's uh, turn in your Bibles to chapter... 35, 25 of Leviticus. And we're going to be looking at uh, this idea of a, um, a jubilee. It's a Sabbath rest of the land and a, an opportunity that culminates every 50th year 
in a year of Jubilee. And we want to understand what that means, and we'll explore some of the history behind it and how God had it working and stuff. So look in in, uh, Leviticus chapter 25. But before we do any reading, I just want to give you some context. Uh, A jubilee is a, it's really from the Bible, but we use it today to indicate a celebration, usually the celebration of some anniversary of a big event. For example, Queen Elizabeth in 1977, she celebrated her, uh, I think it was her silver jubilee, 25 years from the time that she was coronated as, uh, as Queen of England. And then in 2002, she celebrated her 50th uh, jubilee, 50th anniversary, and she called it the golden jubilee. And these are big deal celebrations in England. How many of you watched this, the diamond jubilee in, in uh, 2012? Nobody? Nobody cares about England. Okay, that's all right. I watched it. I was just curious. Lots and lots of money was spent. I've, in fact, I was looking on, on uh, the internet about how much money was spent around that time. It was just incredible how much they were investing in a celebration of this anniversary. Now, you might be, jub- and, and I just want to point out, there's a, there's a connection between jubilee and jubilant. Can you tell the connection? <laughs> They're just right built into the words. They have the same root. What does jubilant mean? Uh, jubilant is that happiness that comes from victory and triumph. And, right? It's the kind of thing that you experience, the, the, the emotion you have when uh, maybe this isn't the right crowd for this. But when your Super Bowl team, I mean, your team, your, your football team wins a Super Bowl. Any, anybody be, been jubilant recently? Oh, we have a hand, at least one person. I, I once used a football illustration in evangelistic series. Afterwards, the church kindly gave me a football for dummies book. <laughs> I'm probably not the best to use football illustrations, but it, maybe it's the, the, uh, the Super Bowl and you're excited about that and you have a celebration, your team's won, that's exciting, you're jubilant because of triumph. Maybe um, you're jubilant because your, your company reached a, a milestone or met a, a sales goal or something like that. That's a, that's a time for triumph and jubilation. Uh, or maybe in, in your case, it might be that you've paid off your student debt and you're jubilant because that's over. You're not in bondage anymore. Or maybe, maybe you're looking forward to the time sometime soon where you can pay off your mortgage I know that's something that uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not to retirement age or anywhere close yet, but, but it's on my radar. I really like to own my home when I retire because I'm watching my in-laws. Hopefully, my, my father-in-law doesn't listen to this sermon. <laughs> but I'm watching my in-laws in retirement buying a home, and they don't have the cash. And so they're, they're looking at you know, all of their income streams and all that stuff. And, and I'd, rather, I'd rather be paid off, you know? I would be jubilant if I owned my home outright. Those are reasons for jubilation. And, and I think as we explore this idea of jubilee, you'll start to recognize how jubilation is built into God's design of the year of jubilee. So let's uh, look at Leviticus chapter 25. Now, the book of Leviticus it records all these laws that God gave to, to his people. Their religious laws and their civic laws. And keep in mind, this is God talking to Israel in a theocracy. And a theocracy just means that God's the, the government. So he's the one in charge. He's the one making the laws. There, there's no Congress. There's no monarch. God's the, the one that runs the government. And, and some of these things that, that Leviticus brings up, I mean, it talks about health laws. It talks about um, just a variety of things. Um, any number of laws are included in the mix when it comes to Leviticus. For, for instance, um, Leviticus 23 talks about specific times that the Israelites were to get together. And they were required several times a year. I think three or four, two or three times a year, they were required to get together, hang out with other people. It's like a mandated camp meeting. Um, and other times, they could go if they wanted to, to the tabernacle. If they couldn't, it was all right. Uh, but they, they had a period of, of a feast, and they would get together with maybe people more locally in those times. And so they were required to hang out together socially and, and also religiously. And, and it seems like God prioritizes not just the religious ceremony, but the social gathering on equal terms. And, and it would make sense that he does. Um, this is the God who says um, that, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. 
right? So he's coordinated both the religious and the social calendars. But he also has laws about, about money. He has laws about, I mean, even where you should go to the bathroom. Um, all kinds of stuff are here in Leviticus. Now, some of these laws were laws that were leading up to Jesus. And so they, they don't apply anymore, uh, not because they weren't valid. They're really important, but they were leading to and pointing to Jesus and his first death and, and also his uh, work in heaven. But then others of these laws in Leviticus only applied while they were in a theocracy. And then uh, they didn't always uh, work out. Uh, and so eventually they, they didn't want to be in a theocracy. And, and those laws stopped applying to the same extent. Now, in, um, in Leviticus 25, we find uh, uh, some laws that are foundational to God's government. This idea of loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself, he builds into the structure of the Israelites' system. And one of them is the sabbatical year or Sabbath year. And the first few verses of Leviticus 25 talk about the Sabbath year. And it's a, a practice where the Israelites would, they would till and they would plant and they would prune and they would harvest for six years. And then the seventh year, the seventh year was a Sabbath year. And in that year, they weren't supposed to till, they weren't supposed to plant, they weren't supposed to prune, they weren't supposed to harvest. And God promised that in the sixth year, he would provide enough for them so that in the seventh year, they wouldn't go hungry. And they were allowed anything that came up uh, from the ground and grew naturally. They, they said that it was not owned by anybody. If you didn't plant it, then you don't own it. <laughs> so if it just grows naturally, then it belongs to anybody. Uh, a servant, somebody wandering through the, the, the fields, uh, you, anybody could go and harvest that food and just for themselves to provide food for their family. So this is a way that God provided for them, but it wasn't, they couldn't store it up. They couldn't plan to sell it. They couldn't sell that food. It was just for anybody. Um, now, it's, it's obvious from the laws that we find in Leviticus 25 that God intended for Israel to be an agrarian society. Most of the people were going to own land, plant uh, vineyards or plant orchards or plant grain or something, and they would barter and share and, and, and sell their, their food to each other to survive. And then this is in a country and a time where there weren't big trains that were going um, across the uh, the country, delivering food here and there. There was no refrigeration systems to transport food, um, no container ships going across the seas, so no bananas. Um, uh, you know, the things that we think of in food transportation, they just didn't have. So you really had to sell your grain to the guy who had apples if you wanted apple cider, you know, the, and, or you have to grow your own. You're not going to go to the store and get apples. That just isn't the, uh, how the system was working. But there were some laborers and some craftsmen and maybe some civic leaders in towns. But even those people in towns would still have maybe a plot of land outside for a family garden, maybe a, a, a cash crop, maybe some livestock. They, they would still be really closely connected with the land. Many years after the laws in Leviticus are laid out, Joshua starts dividing up the land because they're in, they're in the wilderness when God gives them these laws. And it's 40 years later before they ever start to have an opportunity to implement these laws because they didn't have land until Joshua divides it up according to God's plans. Now, every, every tribe would have a big tract of land and every family would have a, a smaller but significant tract of land that they could then give to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren to provide for their, for their needs. The land, it was so significant in Israel's economy, it's the foundation of wealth. If you can't pass on land to your children, then your children are stuck in, in essentially a situation of poverty. Now, let's just say that uh, you inherited a piece of land from your father. And since we're in the Northwest... And, and since you probably will enjoy this, this idea, I'm just going to say that you've decided, you've looked at the market, you've seen that if you go to the store, huckleberries are really expensive, and you could make a killing if you could cultivate huckleberries. Does anybody know that, that huckleberries aren't easily cultivated? Yeah, yeah, you know this. And there's even, some people say that there's some, some shortage of huckleberries in the mountains, and so we've got to be careful with them. 
Um, so if, if, let's just say that you decided that you're going to plant some huckleberries, and so you decide to go all in. You're going to invest in this. You're going to put up a greenhouse. You're going to, uh, tons and tons of stuff, but you need money. And so you've got this inheritance, and you go to a nearby farmer, and you say to him, could I borrow some money? And he says, sure. Um, you give me your land if you don't pay the money, and then we have a deal. And, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I'm going to make a killing. It'll be great. And so you, you take the money and you buy a greenhouse and you go to the blacksmith and you buy a plow and you buy an oxen or a pair of oxen and, the, and some, a yoke and stuff. You hire a crew and they clear out all the, the rocks and you hire another crew and they put in a, a canal so that you can water your field and all this kind of stuff. And then you, you hire some more people and you go up to the mountains and you collect just the choicest huckleberry bushes. Um, you, you do it under cover of darkness so nobody knows because they'd be really mad at you. Um, <laughs> But you, you bring these things down and, and you transplant them into your field. And for the next few weeks, you carefully water these huckleberry plants and half of them die. But you're not discouraged. You planned for this. You knew there was going to be some setbacks. And then a few weeks go by and huckleberry season starts to come into, into that, that time. And, and you're expecting there's going to be flowers. No flowers. You're expecting there's going to be berries, but no berries. The workers go into the field, into the, to the woods, they collect their huckleberries, they make their, their money, and you've got nothing. In fact, your huckleberries all die at the end of the season. And you can't pay back any of your loan. And you know what that farmer, he does? He comes to you and he says, you know, it looks like things aren't working out. I really need to get paid. And you say, I can't pay you anything. And he says, that's fine. I'll use your field next year. And that'll be my field. Now, that seems like a, a good deal, except you live by the land. And if in a society, an agrarian society, where you've got nothing if you don't have land, you're just going to hire yourself out for those odd jobs that other farmers have for you. And that's not a really great living. In fact, your wife is probably going to be seen gleaning at the edges of the fields like Ruth did. And, and she might be picking up the, the fruit that it falls to the ground after the, the gleaners go through. Uh, it's not going to be a great year for you. But God, he saw all of these things, and, and he recognized there needs to be an opportunity um, to kind of a relief valve, you might say, for the economy. Because see that in, a, in an agrarian society where land is everything, when you give your land to that guy you owe all that money to, next year he's got more land to leverage than he did the year before. And so he, when he loans money or buys a field, he's taking less and less risk the bigger his operation gets. It might be if he's careful and he takes uh, calculated risks, it might be that he becomes the largest farm operator in that area. And it could seem that the rich just keep getting richer. And you, you've lost your land. You've got nothing to pass on to your kids. You've got no wealth, no employment opportunities. You've got nothing for them. And so they're stuck in this cycle of uh, the rich getting richer. So God sees this and designs a couple relief valves. And the first one I just mentioned was in the first few verses of Leviticus 25. It's the Sabbath year. So for six years, you plant and you harvest and you plant and you harvest and you plant and you harvest. And then the seventh year, you're not allowed to do anything. And so in the seventh year... The wealthy landowner that got your land, he can't make any money that year, except for maybe selling some of the stuff he put in store. You, on the other hand, you're in the same position that he's in now. You can go to, to his fields and you can glean from his fields. And wouldn't it be fun? Think of, think of this. Wouldn't it be fun if you're in the society to, and maybe you have an orchard? apples and peaches and plums and whatever else you, you think are, are amazing and pears and whatnot. And you invite a whole bunch of people. Let's just say everybody from the church. And you're like, let's have a party. And you do a cookout and you, you, you get a bunch of, of fruit and everybody is, is uh, canning together. And you're not worried about profits. You're not worried about what you're, you've, you're losing to uh, all these free giveaways or whatever. You, you're not worried about paying for workers. Like you just don't have any stress. In this year, you're, you're just having a, an enjoyable time, spending time with other people that are having an enjoyable time. And everybody is kind of, kind of brought into the same plane of existence during this Sabbath year. It's a time for social engagement. It's a time when you're not worried about getting up early or going to bed late because you've got these fields to work, and so you've got time with your family. 
and your body can heal uh, from the strenuous work of farming. Uh, it's an opportunity that you have because you don't, you're not tied to your harvest schedule. You can go and hang out at, at any of the religious feasts, and maybe you could go and, and spend some time with your, uh, your relative, maybe your sister that moved down south some time ago. This is that's just a wonderful opportunity for the society to bond. But after the Sabbath year, the man who got your field, he still has your field. And so he can continue to grow in wealth. And you are still without your property. And so you're still a day laborer and uh, doing the best you can. So God designed another relief valve. And that's found in uh, starting in verse 10 of Leviticus 25, and it's called the year of Jubilee. And he says, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So, so this was a year when the land is restored to the families that God gave it to at Joshua's time. That's the design of, of this year of Jubilee. And, uh, and if you had a debt that you owed, you were released from that debt. Now, let's go back to the Huckleberry Gamble. Let's say that you inherited your field 25 years before the year of Jubilee, 25 years before you could get that land back. And uh, you went to your neighbor and you said, can I borrow $250,000? And the neighbor thought and maybe did a few calculations on his pot shirt or whatever. And he says, you know what? Yes, I'd be happy to lend you $250,000 because he knows that if you default on your loan, he has enough time to use that field to earn back what he lent you. Now, if you had come to him 12 years before the year of Jubilee, do you think he'd give you $250,000? He, he knows that land is going back to you pretty soon, so he's not going to give you that much money. He might give you $75,000. And, and so the, the year of Jubilee kind of, it creates an economic system where the well-to-do can never take advantage of the poor without, without messing up their own financial system, right? And the poor can never go completely bankrupt, which is nice because sometimes parents make bad decisions and their kids get the brunt of it. Even if they are hardworking people, um, a child born in poverty has a really hard time of raising themselves up to wealth. But if you have that reset every so often, then the children can, can try and do something better, hopefully not huckleberry farming. <laughs> hopefully they've got a better idea than that. Now, can you imagine the joy of this huckleberry farmer when he comes to the 50th year and he gets this land back, now he's, he's got something to pass on to his children. That is a reason for jubilee. Do you see where, where God is coming from here? See, jubilation is something that you do when you've, you've got a victory, when you've had a triumph, when, you've, when your debt has been canceled, when you get back the inheritance that was originally given to you. I hope you're making a connection between a spiritual reality and the reality of their economic system because God has a plan for a spiritual jubilee where all of those in bondage are set free. So keep that in the back of your mind as we keep talking a little bit about this jubilee. Now, the, the jubilee was just like that Sabbath year, the seventh year, six years of working the field, seventh year of Sabbath. Well, the jubilee was just that way, but if, you can, if you're careful, you can count this. Seven times seven is 49. So the 49th year is a sabbatical year. It's a Sabbath year of rest for the land. And then what year is the jubilee year? It's the 50th. Now think about this. You've got a Sabbath year. And then you've got a jubilee year where you do the same thing. You don't work the land. You trust God to provide. Can you imagine living in an agrarian society? No refrigeration. Like your storage of stuff is dry goods um, at best. You've got two years where you can't plant uh, and, and intentionally grow uh, your food. It's going, to, it's going to test your faith a little bit. There's something about, even though it's jubilation and it's exciting, there's something about this year that makes it a little bit concerning. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. 
And Israelite, the Israelite economy was designed to keep this mindset of trusting God for providing our daily needs in mind. It's trying to, to keep that always before the people. God is the one who gives you your food. Who gave the Israelites their food in the wilderness? God gave them manna, right? There's probably something about this year of Jubilee that's going to remind the children of Israel of their manna experience. Or it's going to make them look at the cellar and want to go out and plant their field. One of the two is going to happen. They're either going to deepen their trust in God or they're going to take it back and try to do it on their own. That, that's kind of what's going to happen. And, and it's going to be a pretty big temptation to do it on our own. What if you are not on good speaking terms with your neighbor that's got the apple orchard? You might not ever get apples. What if your cellar is running dry and, uh, and you're looking there and you're thinking, what will we eat tomorrow? How much are you going to be tempted to stop trusting God and to try to make it work on your own? I can tell you a story about a family who decided to stop trusting in God and to make it work on their own. You can read the whole story in a book called Ruth. Now, we thought we'd like to think that the Ruth is a good story, and God makes wonderful things out of mistakes that people make. But you see, these are a, a group of people who decided that they didn't trust God to provide for them, and so they left. That's a, that's a temptation that we all have in our daily lives. And we have not just the, the physical needs of our bodies, but we have all kinds of things where we are needing to trust in God. And we get to the point of pain and we say, no, I can't do that. I'm going to figure this out. Rather than saying, all right, God, what are you going to do? Where's the manna coming from today? And the reality of the year of Jubilee, this whole system of, this whole economy is that everybody had to be on board or nobody would be on board. And that's what I, from reading the Bible and my perspective, I, I haven't, um, I, I can't find a place, though it might be that, that it's there, I can't find a place where Israel actually ever kept a single year of Jubilee. I can find a place where God kind of forced the issue, uh, do you remember the time of Elijah? They had three years where they weren't making anything in that land. Three years of no rain, and God just said, you know what, we're just going to put a pause and see if they will trust in me. And what does the Bible record during that time? The, the one guy that it's pointing out, and then it kind of mentions these other prophets that this guy Tobiah is taking care of, but the one guy that it's focused in on, how does God provide for him? That there's the ravens, and then there's the woman that, that has this flower that just keeps coming and keeps coming, even though there's only a little bit at the bottom. God guarantees that he will not starve his children. But do we trust him? And that's what the Jubilee is asking. Do you trust me? There's a bunch of principles that I think come from this idea of the year of Jubilee. And some of those principles were completely lost because the people stopped trusting in God. But God brings them back in Isaiah chapter 58. And I'd like you to, to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 58, a, a, a chapter that applies the year of Jubilee principles to a society that had stopped doing the year of Jubilee and left that economy. And God, he always intended for his family on earth to live in unity and harmony, to have this, this social relationship that was tight um, he didn't intend for people to just give away all their wealth to the poor, but he did design a system that they would always have a room at their table that people could come and, and eat, um, always have a space at the edge of their fields that somebody who was needy could glean from the, the crops that were growing there. Nobody should be hungry in God's economy. But that's not how the Israelites were living. The, the wealthy were lending to the poor in a way that would bind the entire generations, like multiple generations of their family in indebtedness to them. We're talking about long-term slavery. You're a slave, your kids are a slave, right? That was never designed by God. Uh, and, and these are a group of people that were, they were acting religious. They were going to the feast. They were doing their fast days. They were, you know, keeping the Sabbath and going to the synagogue and all this kind of stuff. But when it came down to actual day-to-day -day living, they were not acting nice. They didn't have loving relationships with their neighbors. They were, uh, according to the words of Isaiah 58, they were speaking wicked words 
and, and hitting with a wicked fist. They were fighting among each other. Their relationships were broken down. Um, and, and so we find in uh, Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 4, a God who's really quite disgusted at the community that Israel has become. It says, cry aloud, don't hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. And God responds to this fake religiosity. And he he says, you need to go back to the principles of the Jubilee. The principles of loosing the bonds and letting the oppressed go free. The, The... principle of living generously by sharing your food and your clothes with those who have a need, and even your home with those who have a need, opening your home specifically to your family and uniting your family in loving relationship. And also, there's a a connection with the community, a a grace-filled kindness about how you relate to your neighbors and to those who live nearby you, developing loving relationships. This is kind of all in the mix when you read Isaiah 58. And Isaiah goes on to tell about the results of um, living like this. He says in verse 10, if you pour out yourself, um, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You want to have success, you want to have wealth, you want to have happiness and peace, then go back to the economy I designed. The one that prioritizes not just a spirituality where we uh, try to impress God, but we have a loving relationship with God and we love our neighbors as ourselves. This economy that God designed is a, um, a, a place where relationships are a priority. And then in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13, it's a a verse that we know really well as Sabbath-keeping Christians. He says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, sometimes we focus on the stop stepping on the Sabbath part, but I think we're, that, that's important, but I think where God's wanting to focus our attention in the whole context of Isaiah 58 isn't don't do, don't do, don't do with a critical, um, judgmental, stern, exacting attitude, but God is encouraging us to have this generosity that comes from gratefulness that, that overflows and that our Sabbath day is a day where we do God's will and God's will being that, that jubilee attitude. When we recognize that God has given us everything we have, when we start with that trust in God, everything I have belongs to you, everything I have is from you, God, then we become, well, and, and also we need to, to have the attitude of contentment. I'm okay right where you've got me, God. Right here is okay. In fact, Timothy talks about, he says, if you've got, if you've got clothes on your back and food in your belly, then that's a perfect place to be content. <laughs> I could think of a few more things I'd like for my contentment, um, but I think that the basics are really, are you clothed? Do you have food? God's providing for you. Be content. So if we, if we see all that we have is given from God, if we are content with where he's got us right now, then the natural result of that is generosity. Jesus describes a generosity, and, and I, I think it might be the case that the poor are more generous than the wealthy. The wealthy might give more, but the poor are more generous. And this is kind of how I think of it. This woman with the two mites that Jesus sees, and he points her out, and he says, that woman, she gave more than all the rest of these. 
And the reason was because the woman gave all that she had. Two mites wasn't much, but she gave it all. And, and then you look at the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, how can I be saved? Jesus kind of talks about a few things and then tells him, sell all that you have and give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. Now, if he told that to the, to the widow with the two mites, what would she have done? Sure, no big deal. Who's poorer than me? Here. <laughs> She'd follow Jesus easily. But the rich young ruler, he looks at all the things that he's worked his life to, to develop, all his possessions, and he prioritizes his wealth over Jesus. And so Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But as Christians, whether, wherever we are on the wealth spectrum, I think we should have an easy come, easy go attitude about our stuff. <laughs> Maybe that's the wrong thing to say, um, but, but it, it kind of made sense in my mind. So let me tell you what I'm thinking about this. Easy come, easy go. What if, what if we saw our possessions like the woman saw her two mites? Hey, God gave it to me. If he has a need for it, sure, he can have it back. What if we saw everything that we possessed with that kind of a mindset? You, you have to have that mindset if you're going to be that landowner who gives back the land to the guy who owed him money. You've got to have that mindset if you're going to follow through with what God has asked us to do. It's God's property. God gave it out. I'm just a steward for a short period of time. Here, God, it's yours again. What if we had an easy come, easy go attitude? I believe that generosity flows from a grateful heart, a heart that understands this is not my stuff. This is God's stuff. So if God has a need, I'm okay if God says that that's, that that's going to come for me. I'm okay with that. He's going to provide whatever I need in the future. He provided whatever I needed in the past. He'll do it again. Faithful, trusting gratitude leads to generosity. One of the outcomes in the New Testament church that it was, it was a, a, a church that brought this trusting attitude, this just raw trust God for everything mindset. And as a result, you see people that are giving sacrificially, selling all that they have and giving it to the poor, exactly like Jesus told the rich young ruler to do. And I think we should be grateful to God for our physical possessions. But if you are thoughtful, you'll recognize that you have a lot more needs than your clothing or your food. You have social needs. I remember as a little boy, I didn't have very good friends, and I would plead with God to give me friends. Maybe you experience loneliness, and, and it's easy to distrust God, especially if you're a young person, and you're in that stage of life where you're longing for connection and for intimacy and, and for a deep relationship like a marriage relationship offers. And if you're in that place and you live in Bonners Ferry and you're looking around and you're like, where am I going to find somebody my age that loves Jesus? It might be a temptation to just kind of take over yourself and to figure it out on your own. But God, he has everything in his hands. And if he can provide manna in the wilderness, I guarantee he can provide a godly spouse for you. He's got a plan. He's got a jubilee coming for you, a time where you can say, triumph, I have my needs fulfilled. But, but there's a time of trusting that we need to have. And maybe that's, uh, and I would say that there's all kinds of needs um, you might have a social need or a physical need, but there, there might be a spiritual need that you have. Maybe it's your spiritual life that feels dry, like you're in the desert. I guarantee you, God's got a plan. And this time in the wilderness is not, is not badly spent. Ask God, trust him and ask him, is, can you give me something more? I need some water from your living water. I need that well in my life. I need some bread today. Doesn't Jesus tell us to pray that, he, that God would give us our daily bread? Maybe your needs are emotional. I don't know what your needs are, but it's, it's easy to trust God when things are going well and to be grateful and say, thank you, God, for my wonderful family. You know, when your spouse is happy and content and your children are, are happy with each other and playing well, it's easy to be like, wow, this is an amazing family. Thank you so much, God. But when your spouse is discontent or when your kids are always fighting, 
uh, that's a harder place to be, isn't it? Trusting God at that moment is more difficult. When you have all the things that you need physically, it's, it's not hard to trust in God. So thank you, God, for this 10 acres that I have and for these full um, pantry and for the, the gas I have in my car. But when you're going month to month and you're having to choose between filling up your car and paying your utility bills, there's a point where it's difficult to trust. But God invites us still to trust him and to be grateful, even in that context, even in a situation where it doesn't feel like he's providing. He says, be grateful for for all that I give you, because I will provide for your needs. In Hebrews, Paul puts this attitude of trust in God in the context of contentment, and he says it this way, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then if you look in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul expresses his personal trust in God. And he says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Did you know that that verse was about need? I can do this, God. I can be here in the wilderness experience of my life. I can trust you because you give me strength, because you are always with me. Hmm. It's not easy to trust in God. But in these times of wilderness experiences, God asks us to do exactly what the Israelites were asked to do on their Sabbath year and in the year of Jubilee. He says, just relax. Just like that dog that our our children's story talked about. Just relax. I got this, God says. Just relax. Enjoy. (laughs) Is that too much to ask? To enjoy hard experiences? It might feel like too much to ask, but I guarantee you God's got a plan, so just give it to him and enjoy the things that he's given you. In uh, this year... Uh, the coming year, 2020, our church has made plans. We've got all kinds of ideas. And the elders and I were looking at it yesterday, and I was just telling them, whew, this looks like it's going to be a lot of, a lot of fun and a lot of work. <laughs> and, uh, and I suggested the idea that we do some strategic planning in 2020, maybe set out a five-year plan and figure out all the stuff that we're going to need to accomplish these things that we've suggested, these visions that God has given us. And it might be that we have capital needs like, you know, building or whatever. It might be that we have financial needs, fundraising and whatnot. And those are concerns because there's only so much money in this room, right? And, uh, and what, what's God going to do? How's he going to provide? And one of the elders, I won't embarrass him by telling, telling who, but one of the elders said, you know, Jason, it's all right to have a plan and everything, but this is kind of a business idea. What you really need to be focused on is trusting in God. And he, he said three things, and I wanted to, to tell you them. He says, we need a praying church. We need a church who's constantly saying, all right, God, what now? Where do you want us to go right now? We're, we're trusting you for our next step. Like the Israelites going through the wilderness and the, the, the cloud leading them. They'd stay right there until that cloud moved. And as soon as the cloud moved, what were they doing? Packing up to go. That cloud was leading them. We need God to lead us in the same way that he led the Israelites in the wilderness. And so we pray and seek God's continual guidance. And then we need to be listeners, willing to and ready to hear the Holy Spirit's guidance. What is God telling us? Um, How is he convicting our hearts? And, And it might be that God convicts you to do some crazy ministry idea. And the rest of the church isn't quite on board, but, but God has convicted you. And so I say, follow the Holy Spirit's conviction. Let's let the Holy Spirit convict us. We're going to design the structure of our church a little bit around small groups in the near future. And the goal would be that the small groups have a vision from God and that that they're listening to God. And we need to be not just a, a listening group, but we need to be a group that's ready and willing to get up and go and follow God's convictions. Not just to plan. We should plan, but not just to plan. We should rely on God, trusting in God for each step. So this holiday season, it's Thanksgiving time. I want you to go and I want you to do that traditional thing where you say thanks to God for all his good things around that table. It's easy to do that, though, when it's Thanksgiving time. 
but God provides your breath every moment of every day of every year. Should we leave our gratitude just at Thanksgiving? No, I think, I think we should develop an attitude of gratitude, a habit of gratitude. And so I'd like to challenge you to, uh, to join the five-day gratitude challenge. I'm not asking for a whole year yet. We'll get there. But five days. What do you think? Can you do five days? Here's, here's what I'd like to suggest. It's five days. Take five minutes. Five minutes a day towards the evening and, and get a journal. Um, you could get one of those thin moleskin things. You could take uh, some paper from your printer. Uh, it doesn't matter what it looks like. In fact, it doesn't have to be even very big. A little one is fine. And just jot down one, two, maybe three things that you're grateful for in that day. And discipline yourself. Do it five days in a row. That's, what is that? Um, today's one. So Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Oh, look at that. The sixth day will be Thursday. That's Thanksgiving. So you might as well be a six-day gratitude challenge, right? What do you think? Would you be willing to do that? The five-day gratitude challenge? Write something you're grateful for. God, I'm grateful that. And remember, God provides for every need. So you've got lots to be grateful for, right? And as we close and, and we think about this gratitude challenge, I'd like you to remember the most significant thing. I hinted at it earlier. In the Jubilee, the prisoners are set free. And Jesus says, or in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus, while we were still sinners, in bondage, sold as slaves of sin, Christ died for us. And in his first coming, he released us from the shackles of sin, but he's going to come soon. And he's going to release us from the presence of sin to live with him forever. The Jubilee, the Jubilee is a, a time where we can celebrate victory and triumph. Christ has triumphed over sin, and soon he'll triumph over the grave. We are a people designed for celebration, for jubilation, for joy, because we trust in God to provide, and we're, we're grateful and content wherever he has us. Let's sing our closing hymn.